This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, in conjunction with Indivisible Eastside, we present a town hall with 9th District Congressman Adam Smith. He is the chair of the Armed Services Committee, and he joins us to discuss this year's National Defense Authorization Act, which authorizes how much the U.S. spends on defense each year. This year, it'll be somewhere in the neighborhood of $740 billion. We break down how the money is spent, how it might be better spent or even drawn down, and how it reflects our priorities and values. We also touch on how Smith sees the fight against authoritarianism and what he believes it'll take to restore our standing in the world post-Trump. This conversation was recorded on the morning of Saturday, August 16th, 2020. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Kat Pipkin, Jennifer Ho, Louise Pate, Larry Barrent, Chris Franco, Elizabeth Beavers, and Mary Small for their help today. And welcome, everybody, to today's town hall. My name is Stephen Cox. I'm the host of the Washington State Indivisible podcast. On behalf of Indivisible Eastside, we are very, very happy to welcome 9th District Congressman Adam Smith. He is the chair of the Armed Services Committee and is graciously joining us today to talk about this year's National Defense Authorization Act. The NDAA, as it is commonly known, is the largest portion of the U.S. discretionary budget. So it is one and it is one of two must pass pieces of legislation. This is a very big deal. Congressman Adam Smith, it is wonderful to talk with you again, sir. Uh, Welcome. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the work you guys are doing. Well, thanks for the work that you are doing. And uh, we'll get to the NDA in in just a moment. Uh, But I do want to start with your thoughts on Trump's attacks on the Postal Service, which we know are a direct threat to our elections. You just signed on to a letter with 172 of your colleagues calling out Trump for intentionally sabotaging the Postal Service. I'm wondering, what leverage do you feel the Democrats have in protecting the Postal Service right now? Well, I think the biggest leverage we have is public pressure. Now, we're we're doing other things as well. We're the, The big thing we're fighting for is in the COVID relief package to get money for the post office. I think we put $25 billion in there in our Thing. And it's one of the things that we're really insisting upon in those negotiations, which, of course, I mean, the Republicans have sort of you know, decided that they don't want to do anything. And we're trying to convince them that that's not a smart way to go. Um, so we're going to have that that fight going forward. But that's one big thing we can do is to get money in there, help shore it up. And, you know, we're, we've got some hearings scheduled to hopefully bring in the new uh, postmaster general um, in September. I think government oversight has set that hearing to have that conversation. Um, but the best thing we can do is public pressure from every angle um, and shine a bright light on the fact. And you, if you saw Jared Kirshner's interview and some of the comments, I mean, they're basically saying that they are intentionally you know, reducing the effectiveness of the post office because they don't want the absentee ballots to come in. They're not, they're not make, pulling any punches about it. Uh, they're flat out saying that. And then they're saying, well, because of fraud and that, you know, there's the interesting case in Pennsylvania where the judge said, show me evidence. Um, and they can't because they don't have it. And I think to the extent we shine a light on that, you can then sort of get pressure from you know, Republicans. I mean, I, you saw, as an example, Marco Rubio, when the president suggested that, you know, maybe he will delay the election. You know, Marco Rubio found that, you know, threatening to his own interests in the Republican Party and said, no, we're going to have an election on November 3rd. It's going to happen on November 3rd and it's going to be legitimate. Um, So that public pressure and even I think just yesterday you you had heard about they're they're literally going out and picking and taking in uh, mailboxes 
uh, yeah. public mailboxes and reducing the numbers that are out there. Well, they've stopped that as of the moment. Um, and they've stopped that because of the public pressure. We have to shine a bright light on the fact that the president um, is trying to subvert democracy in an unprecedented way um, and make them pay a political price for it. We'll also try to push the money. We'll try to do the legislative thing. But, you know, at the end of the day, all that winds up on the president's desk anyway. Um, so you know, we're, we're in a bit of a box on that one. We'll push it. But that public pressure, don't underestimate the, the ability of that to influence the decisions. Absolutely public pressure. And of course, you realize that you are speaking to an audience full of progressive activists who are more than willing to get out on the front lines and do just that. I will just as a follow up ask, you mentioned hearings, um, which uh, I believe I've heard a number of people call for to you know, hold hearings with Postmaster General DeJoy. You said September these may be happening. Um, I believe that what my staff told me today is that we've set a hearing for the first or second week of September when when the House comes back back into session. Um, now, obviously, we have to get the postmaster to show up. Um, I, I you know went through a battle to get the uh, Secretary of Defense to show up, um, and it took us about a month, I think, uh, to finally get get a date when they would come. Um, yeah, I mean, I think if we can do it sooner, we should try and do it sooner. Um, but you know, we're we're trying to push. It's all part of a broad part. And look. And activists are important. Members of Congress are important as well. Elected officials, you know, sending those letters, making statements, going on TV, um, you know, you know, social media, whatever we can do to shine a light on this. I think the overwhelming majority of people in this country are going to be on our side um, that you shouldn't, you know, try to actively stop people from voting. And at the end of the day, that's what they're trying to do. And additionally, it's my understanding that the Postal Service has a 91% approval rating. So this, we, we seem to certainly be on the right side of this argument. I, I will just also, before we move on to the NDAA, ask you generally about election security, your thoughts there. Uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut has been privy to intelligence on Russian interference and has been vociferously sounding the alarm. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts here on what can be done? And, and are you concerned personally? Yeah. I mean, there's two pieces to it. One is, you know, what, what they do in terms of, you know, uh, driving out um, conspiracy theories, false narratives, new, using social media to, you know, whether it's to, you know, support Trump or more frequently uh, to get people just not to vote, um, you know, drive out messages about division or tell people the, the election day is this day or that day, or there's a new rule that you have to do that. You know, that sort of social media effort to, to police that is enormously important. You know, but the real fear um, is that they will find a way to actually manipulate the vote, um, to, you know, change some of these voting machines, to, to mess with the software. And I think on a state by state, you know, basis, we have to go, go ensure and make sure that we're protecting that. Um, and again, a lot of public pressure and it's got to be a comprehensive campaign. I'm very concerned about it. Look, I mean, I've got, politically speaking, I, I lay out the concerns in three layers. Number one, we've got to get rid of Trump for a whole series of very obvious reasons. Uh, number two, what happens from November 3rd to January 20th? Um, how much damage can this guy cost? Does he try to undermine the legitimacy of the election? Does he claim it's fraudulent? Does, you know, let's say even if he doesn't claim it's fraudulent, does he like do all kinds of ridiculous executive war? And, you know, how can we main, you know, maintain the country so that we can get to January 20th? And then if all goes well, and we actually have Joe Biden and Kamala Harris um, in office, we take the Senate, hold on to the House, then we have to govern. 
Um, and I, I do think we need to spend a little bit of time thinking about how that's going to play out, which will play into our discussion of the NDAA, as a matter of fact. Because, um, look, I mean, it, we need to get Trump out, no doubt about it. And it's a huge victory no matter what happens after that. Um, but it is a much more limited victory if we fail and the Tea Party comes roaring back into power in 2022. Completely agreed to everything that you said. And indeed, we will be uh, figuring in hypotheticals and, and hopefully soon to be the reality of the situation that we have uh, a, a Democratic trifecta and, and, D, and control of D.C. by Democrats. I do want to talk now about the NDAA, and I would love to frame our discussion by asking you what you feel the top threats to our national security are right now. Yeah, well, let me um, hit two points to sort of get there, and I'll get there. But first of all, you know, in terms of what we try to accomplish within the NDAA, I want to sure, make sure people understand it. I mean, one one big piece of it, as you as you mentioned, is actually the only piece of legislation that is passed every year. I mean, on the appropriation side, we have gone entire years with continuing resolutions, which I guess is a piece of legislation, but it's not exactly what's intended. So a huge part of what I'm interested in is I, I'm the legislative process is important in and of itself, and it's it's under threat right now. Um, the idea of democracy working the way it should. You know, you send a bill through committee, you debate it, you vote on amendments, you go through the floor, everyone gets to participate. The, the defense bill is the one example of how we keep doing that. I think it's enormously important. And also to make sure that the legislative branch doesn't slip further into irrelevance. You know, we've all been concerned about executive power, um, but if we can't pass legislation, and then we lose our ability to have any oversight. The defense bill has the merit that we want to pass it. The president, whoever the president is, wants to pass it. Um, so we are able to legislate in that way. And it's also helpful for individual members. We take on all manner of different issues in there. I mean, the intelligence authorizing bill only gets passed these days by being attached to the defense bill. Uh, we did a major rewrite on small business stuff. So we want to get that done. And then there are the broader issues. Okay, how does it, all of that aside, how does the National Defense Bill do its, its, its main mission, which is to reflect what our national security policy should be? Um, and what should the military component of that be? And I have one big goal going forward as a starting point, and that is that for the longest time, and I've told you this before, so I'll give you the shorter version of this, the general approach of the Republican Party and, and many in this country has been no matter what we're spending on DOD, it is not enough. Okay. The threats are greater than we imagine. Um, you know, and, and so there's been this, you know, the self-looking ice cream cone, as I describe it. You know, we've got to spend so what I would love to do is I would love to get back to a discussion that more realistically looks at those threats, number one. Number two, more realistically looks at what is militarily necessary to deter those threats. And then number three, looks at all of the other tools in our toolbox, diplomacy, development, alliances, that can deter those threats without spending a lot more money on the military. So against that backdrop, the, the threats to the U.S. right now on a national security perspective. Now, we obviously have grave threats um, in terms of global instability. I would say that the top threats to our interests are, um, you know, the the concentration of wealth throughout the globe that has led to instability in so many places. Um, climate change, which also has led to to instability in so many places. And I would also say the rise of authoritarian governments that have undermined democracy and freedom. Those three big things 
are what is causing people to want to be violent in the first place. So I, I think we need to think about how can we better promote um, you know, a, a new energy policy that addresses climate change, economic equality. I think all of those things feed into the issue. So once you get below those three, then you have the basic mantra of everybody on their armed services committee, which is Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, transnational terrorists. Um, those are basic, that's the threat matrix that we're trying to build the military up to deter. Um, I can get into the details of those, but so basically I think you've got the three overarching threats. And the final thing I'll say on this is my goal in the way I look at it is how can we have a more peaceful, stable, and prosperous world? Um, and there's a whole lot of different elements of that. The Department of Defense is a piece of it. It is a piece of how we help ensure stability. So how does that piece fit into that larger whole in the goal that we are trying to achieve globally and, and to protect ourselves as well? Peaceful, stable, and prosperous world. Um, when, when you say that, I, I move to ask, it feels like the way that we choose to spend our money is indicative of our values as a nation, and, and maybe especially the NDAA, because it is the largest portion of our discretionary budget. Is that a fair assessment? Would you agree that budgets reflect our values? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think so. I mean, it, there's a whole lot of variables in that statement. Um, what values are you talking about? Um, does the money that you're spending really reflect those? But yes, I think by and large, a budget does reflect what you're trying to accomplish as a society. Um, in part, I mean, it's not the only way we accomplish the money we spend is not the only way we accomplish things, obviously. Um, but it is, it is a part of that larger whole without question. I will let people know that where we sit on the calendar year right now is such that both the House and Senate bills have already passed, meaning that all that is left at this point is reconciliation. So I will ask you this. What do you anticipate some of the key sticking points will be in reconciliation? Um, having to work with Jim Inhofe would be one of the biggest ones. But, <laughs> because he's uh, the head of the Senate Armed Services yeah, Committee. He's the Senate so uh, we all sit down and negotiate that. Um, the, the members of the, the, the ranking members, Jack Reed in the Senate and Max Thornberry in the House, are part of it as well. But obviously, the two chairs are the, the biggest issue. Um, this year, it's a little bit more of a, a narrow, um, we don't have as many issues as we had last year. Um, yeah, the biggest sticking point off the top is the renaming of military bases. Uh, you know, we're trying to you know stop naming things or, or get rid of the names that were named for Confederate leaders. Um, you know, it, actually, the Senate bill um, gets rid of them in three years. We get rid of them in one. Um, and Inhofe's position is that we shouldn't get rid of them at all. Um, and that's because you know that's what Trump wants. So we're going to be fighting over that. Um, Afghanistan. Um, you know, what, what does, you know, Congress say about, you know, the, the, the drawdowns, which are, are happening, um, we've gone down to 8,600 and now we're going to go down to about half of that, um, in the next three or four months, um, troops in Europe, as you know, the president has announced a plan to realign them there in an effort to basically punish Germany because he doesn't like them. Um, and, and I, I, I'm not kidding when I say that there's actually a strategic rationale from moving troops around in Europe and even bringing them some, some of them home. That's not why the president announced this. Um, he announced this um, because you know he, he wanted to punish Germany for whatever you know, weird reasons he may have. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Um, and then it's really just you know several dozen different issues. Well, China is going to be a huge part of this. Um, we have provisions in our bill 
that are trying to move us away from relying on Chinese products, um, you know, and how do we implement those in, in a way that and it makes sense. I mean, we're going through the whole TikTok debate at the moment that there is language on that. So there's going to be a big debate over China and how, how to deal with that. Um, we also have some, you know, differences of opinion on, on nuclear. Um, the Republicans, for some reason, seem now enamored with the idea that we ought to start live testing or restart live testing nuclear weapons again. We are rather adamantly opposed to that. Um, so, and then I have a tiny little cleanup issue from last year, which I'm hoping won't be a problem. But we, as you know, we did um, paid parental leave for all federal employees. Um, but you know, dr- drafting legislation is a good deal more complicated than they looked, and, and we left out a few. Not intentionally. Um, so now I've got them folded back in. So everybody is covered by that. I don't think that'll be a problem because that's a deal we got last year. Um, so that that's some of it. Um, this year is not as controversial as last year and is not going to be as important, hopefully, as next year when we, ha- when we have a better opportunity to fundamentally reshape um, national security policy. It's not going to be easy, um, and it's something that I do, do definitely want to talk about so we can be as prepared as possible, because I don't think it would look good if Democrats you know, sort of fight with each other and we can't produce anything. Um, I think that would be harmful. So we need to, we need to have that broader discussion. This year, eh, there isn't really anything that big that should stop us from being able to pass it. With that in mind, is there anything that you are absolutely standing firm on? Yeah, I'm always reluctant to draw lines in the sand. Things change, things move and evolve. Um, you know, you know, you draw a line in the sand, and then all of a sudden there's this great deal that you could have over here. But you're like, mm, gosh, no, I said I wouldn't take it unless I got that. Now, how do I explain that? So, I tried to give myself as much wiggle room as possible, depending on what's sort of put out there. I mean, the way I put it last year, and I must have said this three dozen times over the course of last year's was the longest, you know, conference negotiation in, I think, the history of the NDAA. And I said, you know, we got a whole lot of things that we want. And, you know, we can talk about what goes where. At the end of the day, this bill has to reflect the Democratic Party's wants and desires that came out of the House. We can't simply ignore the fact that Democrats are now in charge of the House and they've laid out a whole series of issues. There has to be some series of things in this bill that reflects that. I, I took to saying it's, it's, it's an art project, not a math problem. Um, you know, you put the painting up on the wall and you're like, do I like it? Eh. You know, what if we, you know, and then, you know, if you like it, okay, we got a deal. And ultimately, and I know this is highly controversial and we could spend the rest of this time, you know, arguing over this. I'll try not to do that. Um, I think we got to a really, really outstanding place. Um, and, you know, accomplished a great deal within, within the defense bill. But so that's how I approach it. So, no, I mean, I would say, again, the one thing that as I'm sort of mapping it out and I'm like, okay, I can go down here. So we, I don't know on the base thing, you know, because the, the Republicans are A, sorry, Anhoff and Trump are so fundamentally wrong. And you're talking specifically about the renaming of the bases. Correct. And I'm sorry, I should lay this out. You know, I, we have 10 bases that are named after Confederate generals. And then throughout, you know, DOD, we have, you know, monuments and buildings and all manner of different things. And, you know, modeling off off of language that Elizabeth Warren um, got put in on the Senate and the Senate committee, we comprehensively take that. We, we don't change the names of ships, um, but everything else, you know, we're, 
and we set a path. We, we say, okay, within 30 days, you have to identify everything that is named. Within, I think it's another 30 days, um, you have to lay out the plan for how you're going to change it. And then by October 1 of next year, it has to be changed. Um, the Senate does the same thing, but they give them three years. Um, so I have a hard time walking away from something that A, I feel very passionately about. Um, B, it's in both bills. Um, so how we resolve that one, I'm not sure because it's something I feel very, very strongly about. Well, you mentioned earlier that we have had CRs that have extended the passage of the NDA in the past. I'm wondering, is it possible, uh, I'm assuming given what you're saying that it is, that these negotiations could go on past the election? And if that happens, how might that change things? Yeah, there's a minor little thing that you're incorrect about there. We've never had a CR for the NDAA. Um, the, The CR is on the appropriations side. Understood. And I and should mention very, for listeners, the CR stands for continuing resolution. Yeah, sorry. And that's a very important thing. The national defense, because one of the big arguments that we're going to have going forward, it's less of an argument this year because we got a budget deal, is what's the top line number? Yeah, and there's, most of the Democrats who voted against the House version of the bill that passed voted against it because they felt that we were spending too much money on defense, bottom line. It's $741 billion this year. Um, but it was part of a budget agreement that also got us increases in non-defense discretionary. Um, so, um, so that's, that's an, we don't really within the armed services committee control how much money gets spent on defense. We have a say in it, but in theory, the way this is supposed to work is the budget committee sets the numbers. And this is just for the discretionary budget. And keep in mind, the discretionary budget is, I don't know, 25, 30% of the overall budget, um, you know, it's defense and non-defense, and it's broken up into 12 different areas. Defense is one of them. And then you decide, okay, here's our discretionary budget. Here's how it gets divided up amongst. That's what the budget committee is supposed to do. And then also the appropriators have a say in how much money gets spent. None of which is to say that we don't have a say as well. If we wanted to come out and, you know, say, okay, the National Defense Authorizing Act is going to cut by 10% what's authorized. We could get overruled by appropriations, but we could have a say in it. So we don't we don't have a CR. In terms of how the negotiations play out, goal number one is always to get it done by October 1. That's happened exactly once in the 24 years that I've been there. Um, you know, and then after that, it's not really a firm deadline, but we've all sort of held, you know, by the end of the calendar year. We have frequently gone to last year it was the second week of December when we finally passed the conference report. So yeah, we we almost always, frankly, go past the election. And then that factors into the discussion about the base renaming thing. Okay, let's say Trump loses, um, and then we're heading into a new era. You know, I mean, to some degree at that point, I could conceivably say, well, we don't have to fight to the death on this issue because Biden can do it anyway by exe- by executive order. You know, how it how exactly it changes the dynamic, I couldn't predict. Um, well, I could predict, but I couldn't exactly say. Um, but it'll change it. And I, I, I'd be surprised if we were able to get done by October 1. And if we're not, then we're probably going to try to get it done between November 3rd and January 1. We've never drifted into the next year. It will be very interesting to see how it plays out if it does play out uh, after uh, an election that gives us a, a Democratic president. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. I want to ask you about the Congressional Progressive Caucus's call for a 10 percent reduction in the NDAA this year. You did not support that. And, and I think people are wondering why not. 
Yeah, I, several reasons. Um, first of all, I, I don't think if we'd gotten the 10% cut that we would have been able to pass the bill. I was kind of worried about that. We would have lost every single Republican vote at that point. And we probably would have lost a few Democratic votes um, who would have felt that it wasn't strong enough on defense and they would worry how it would play in their district. People like Kendra Horn, who's in a defense-heavy Oklahoma conservative district. Um, and then I know there are a lot of progressives who don't think 10% was enough. Um, so I'm pretty sure that the math would have added up poorly and then we would have been sunk. Um, second reason would be, you know, we cut this budget deal last year and part of how we have been able to get increases in non-defense discretionary spending is by the Republicans want more for defense. We want more for this. We cut the deal. Here it is. Now, I mean, certainly the Republicans, you know, they, they, you know, poke holes in those deals before the ink is even dry. Um, and we're going to fight back against that. But, you know, this was the budget number that was agreed to. Um, but third, when I look at our defense budget, I feel very, very strongly about what I said up front, which is the idea that we can't possibly spend enough is something we need to push back on. But then I do look at what our, and this gets into the question of what our national security policy want should be. Um, and you know, why do we spend the money we spend? I mean, the way I explain it, and I can walk through a few examples, it is, it is an important aspect of deterrence. You know, the, the presence that we have in South Korea, if we had simply pulled out of South Korea after the Korean war, you know, brought our, all the troops home, I, I, I have a hard time imagining that North Korea wouldn't at one time or another have invaded. We deterred them. We protected South Korea and enabled South Korea to grow and flourish. Um, Taiwan is in a similar situation. We can all look and see what's going on in Hong Kong right now and be appalled. Um, there's no particular reason why that couldn't be happening in Taiwan. Now, what is the calculus for whether or not China you know, goes in there and militarily it's not, again, it's not a precise, you know, clearly identifiable, you know, we put this many troops here and then they don't go. Um, but our presence is a deterrence uh, to China wanting to go into Taiwan. Um, you know, we, and then you get into the issues of dealing with um, ISIS and Al-Qaeda. You know, when, when Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, when they set up shop in Yemen back in mid like 2005, 2006, you know, they started plotting attacks. This is Anwar Al-Awlaki. Um, this was the underwear bomber who tried to blow a plane up as it was coming into Detroit. And also they put bombs on, I forget if it was FedEx or UPS or both, but anyway, um, you know, if, if we weren't paying attention to that at some point, he would have succeeded. Um, so how do we contain that threat? And then the final point, is you know the various allies that we work with and i'll give you just one small example from a trip i took in february right before everything got shut down i went to mali and niger um, and tunisia and then up to germany to visit africom and ucom too and in all of those places we we have a very small presence um a couple hundred troops maybe sprinkled between mali and niger and i think right around 100 in tunisia and we work with the local partners, and you've got a various extremist groups going after Burkina Faso and Mali and all these places, and it's not good. Um, there's huge chunks there that are now under the control of extremist groups that are causing all manner of problems, and the governments are hanging on by their fingernails. Um, in Tunisia, they got a threat from Libya on one side and Algeria on the other. Sorry, not necessarily the countries, but there are there are terrorist groups on both sides to come at them. And so we've given them some drones, a couple small things, then we train them how to use them. And, and that's pretty crucial, A, at 
you know, holding back these extremist groups and allowing you know, a government like Tunisia, which you know is the sort of the crown jewel of Arab, the Arab Spring, not collapsing. Uh, but then there's the issue of these countries are going to seek out defense assistance. If we say we're at it, we're not going to do it anymore. Then they go to China. We've got Russia. Russia's tooling around in Africa right now with their mercenary groups. And China and Tunisia, there's actually, you know, some of this is classified, but um, China is very much trying to get a foothold in Tunisia uh, by providing defense in Syria. Now, our stuff is better and they prefer to go with us. So that all sort of factors into it. So if you whack 10% out of it, where does it come from? What do we stop doing? And I've heard people say, well, you know, we've got too many troops overseas. We've got to bring them home. Well, in Europe, in the mid-80s, we had 350,000 troops in Europe. We now have roughly 63,000. We brought a lot home. Um, what does it mean if we bring the other 62,000 home? How does that affect our ability to build the partnership with NATO um, and to help them develop their defense capabilities to deter Russia? So all of that factored into it. And the 10% got worried me. Well, let me just ask, because you've, you've listed a lot of reasons why, uh, you know, GOP intransigence, uh, deterrence, uh, terrorist threats, support for our allies. Is it possible, would it have been possible, instead of having an across-the-board cut, to have a more targeted cut? This cut was actually was a little bit targeted, uh, to, to be fair. It was not across the board. And I forget what they excluded. They excluded certain things. Well, actually, it wasn't so much targeted as it was. They sort of looked at the areas where they felt like, okay, this, this, this might raise concerns, so we're going to exclude those, and then we're going to cut 10% from everything else. Um, and, you know, I just – it's possible, I, I think, that we, we could do that. Um, I'm not closed off to the idea in general. I'd have to see how it plays out. And, and frankly, I couldn't get past the simple math of if this passes, the bill likely fails – um, so that the, the more detailed analysis was was not as detailed as perhaps it could have been. I you'll indulge me if I ask a, a sort of a larger philosophical question around this, because here's what I'm hearing from a lot of listeners uh, regarding this. We are in the middle of a pandemic. We are in the biggest economic crisis of our lifetimes, uh, and we've had to cut social programs at a time when we've absolutely needed more. And I think people are wondering if we are unwilling to cut defense spending at a time like this what it says about our priorities and or our values as a nation. What are your thoughts there? Well, first of all, I, the, the premise is a little bit flawed. But on the federal level, we have not cut, um, cut, cut programs at this point in the pandemic. In fact, we've passed, I have to do the math in my head, I think roughly $3 trillion in emergency spending um, that has been driven out in a variety of programs. And personally, I advocate spending another $3 trillion. Um, and certainly, we ought to get another another two trillion. So I don't I don't think the premise that we've cut other things um, in in this context is is accurate. Um, but you know, in terms of whether or not we should look at the defense budget, look, I mean, if we were going to say, all right, we can't extend unemployment insurance unless we take the money out of the defense budget. Yeah, I mean that that I think would be would be a good question. That's not what's happening. Um, you know, we, we're, we're spending more money in a wide variety of different areas. Now, that gets you into the larger issue of our 24, 25, $26 trillion debt um, that we have right now, you know, and how do we allocate that within that framework. But an important point I want to bring up on this topic is I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding. I, 
I, I hear a lot from progressive folks who want to cut the defense budget that, you know, we've, you know, we, we just continue to increase defense spending and, you know, at, at the expense of, of the other programs that you describe. But if you actually look at the history and you go back and I have the chart, I, I don't know how to both pull a chart up on my computer and keep talking to you. So I'll just have to do it from memory at this point. But if you look at defense spending within two big picture ways, one percent of federal spending and percent of GDP. You know, in the 1950s, when Eisenhower was talking about the military industrial complex, defense spending was actually 70% of the federal budget. And it was roughly 40 to 50% of GDP. And it's now roughly between 18 and 20% of federal spending and about 4 to 5% of GDP. And that's been going down pretty steady in large part because I think our country did shift to, to better reflect our values. We, we've certainly increased Social Security. We passed Medicare. We passed Medicaid. The EPA didn't exist until 1970. I think we have shifted where we're spending our pot of dollars as a country uh, to better reflect you know, the, the social needs of that country. Now, can we continue to do that? Look, I would say that if we, we started on the budget thing, I could probably see us getting to the point where I, I would be comfortable with a 10% cut um, if we're looking at next year at where do we go with the, the budget. Um, but, but I do think we need to understand both that there has been a lot of domestic spending, number one, and then number two, how do those cuts reflect a national, what is our national security policy? What is our view of what the military should do? And if the view is basically, look, the military is, is, is at best a waste of money and at worst, actually an affirmative negative. Sorry, that didn't make any sense. Um, at, at worst, you know, ba basically, well, I will use the quote from my opponent in my 2018 election, a Democratic opponent, when asked, you know, what is the greatest threat to national security in the world? She said the U.S. military. Um, and there is a certain viewpoint on that, that the military and certainly the Iraq war is an example of, you know, the exact wrong way to use the military and how our military can make things worse. There are examples. I don't subscribe, however, to the basic theory that the U.S. military is a fundamental force for bad in the world. If you do, well, that certainly changes your value equation on, you know, whether or not you cut the defense budget. And those are the things I think we as a party have to really debate and resolve as hopefully we get ready to govern. I will ask about a specific, and I, there are specific things that I would like to ask about within the NDAA, but something, and I, and I don't necessarily know if this, this question certainly isn't predicated around the idea that defense spending in and of itself is bad. It gets more to the way in which it is spent that I'd like you to address. So for example, let's talk about the F-35. So this yeah. is a warplane that, according to the New York Times, is expected to cost taxpayers more than a trillion dollars over 60 years. It is notoriously riddled with problems. Uh, a spokesman from the House Armed Services Committee said, quote, it is premature to pile on more funding for more aircraft until the vendor demonstrates that they are able to produce F-35s on time. But the House bill is still calling for $7.5 So this seems to be emblematic of the kind of bureaucratic waste that a lot of Americans complain about, right? And, and I, I wonder, I think many people wonder how continuing to fund the F-35 at that level makes any sense at all. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, there's several different layers here. Number one, the way, you know, starting in the late 90s and into the 2000s, early 2000s, we made a spectacular series of mistakes about how we developed weapon systems. Um, and 
you know, Don Rumsfeld had a lot to do with this. It was him. It was he who decided we're going to skip a generation. Okay. That was the way he put it. You know, because part of the problem is you're building all this stuff and it's really complicated and sophisticated. And as you're building it, new technology is being developed. So you build this great thing and then it's like it's out of date by the time you get it off the end of the thing. So we're going to skip past that. Um, that was really stupid. Um, the F-35 is, you know, the best example, but it is not the only one. And we've got aircraft carriers that have gone way crazy over budget. My personal favorite is the uh, Marine Expeditionary Fighting Vehicle, where someone came up with the genius idea that said, you know, amphibious assaults are getting more difficult. The whole Inchon thing, if you know what we did in, 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 Korea, in the Korean War, um, because missiles are getting better. You know, you come in, people got missiles, they can take you out coming in. So we wanted to build an amphibious assault vehicle that was going to be able to, to, to do this type of landing in a hostile environment. So, but in order to up armor the thing, to protect it from these incoming missiles, it would, well, I don't know, sink. Um, so it wasn't really possible. So the, the correct idea was to go, yeah, Inchon is not happening again in this environment. Uh, but, you know, we went down the road and did that. And the F-35 was another example. And this was, this was all going before I showed up in Congress. But the idea was that we would do a one-size-fits-all thing. This is also the littoral combat ship. I have this analogy that I like to use for the old, uh, well, I don't eat at KFC anymore. I'm sure they still have their spork. Um, the thing about a spork <laughs> is it's, it's not a very good spoon and it's not a very good fork. Um, you know, and that's the littoral combat ship. It's going to do this. It's going to do, well, it doesn't do any of them well enough to actually function. Okay, and that's a problem. And the F-35, what we were going to do was we were going to replace 90% of our fighter attack aircraft with the F-35 by making it, there would be an A variant, a B variant, and a C variant. So we could do the Marine Corps, the Navy, the Air Force, their needs would be met. And this was going to replace, God, the F-14, F-15, F-16, F-18, A-10, you name it, a whole bunch of things were going to be replaced by this one genius idea. But again, a spork, Okay. Um, and the, the cost ballooned. But herein lies the problem. It is designed to replace 90% of our fighter attack aircraft. Why? And, I mean, um, because it doesn't seem like, from, from what I have read, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, it seems like it is filling a hole that does not need to be filled. Yeah, well, here's the thing about that. Um, the F-15 and the F-16 cannot compete in the air with fifth-generation fighters. And in the following sense, what the F-35 does is it sees the enemy before the enemy sees you. Um, and so the fifth generation fighters that are being generated by Russia and China and also some European contributors, the F-15, the F-16 will become useless in that environment. Um, now, if we are going up against, you know, like what we're doing right now in Afghanistan and, you know, what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq when we were not going up against a pure competitor, okay, they, they don't have a freaking Air Force over there. It doesn't matter what we're flying. They can't compete with us. Um, they haven't developed the missiles. They can't take down these things. They don't have a plane. But if you have a pure competitor like Iran or even North Korea um, that does, in fact, have missile technology, um, then the older generation fighters are useless. Because they see you before you see them, and you're dead before you even have a chance to figure out how to fire a shot. The F-35 does give you that capability to see the enemy before they see you um, and move forward. So if we were to completely scrap the F-35 program, we would not have effective fighter attack airplanes. 
Now, none of this is to justify, um, you know, 25 years of decision making here uh, that went into this. But right now, what is our choice? And it is not true, by the way, that the F-35 cannot be used. It, it's, it's usable um, and, and flyable. It's not as good as it needs to be. Um, and we have to continue to put pressure on Lockheed Martin to actually produce the planes in a more cost-effective way. Well, but yeah. if the option is, if the option is to say, well, we should scrap the whole program, that's a significant national security problem. Why? Um, because I, and, what and, I and the reason why I ask that yeah. as bluntly as I am is because, and you certainly know more more about this than I do. But it is my understanding that, say, the A-10 is is perfectly suited to do a lot of the same things that the F-35 is. I mean, the larger question, without getting too far into the specifics and the details, I think has to do with this perception that Americans have that we spend a lot of our discretionary budget on things that are superfluous, that do not work, that, uh, that are, are, are developed in, in ways. It, correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on this. My understanding is that Lockheed Martin has some aspects of the F-35 manufactured in every single state. Uh, I'm wondering, how do we keep program development from happening this way in the future? Yeah. No, I, look, it, it is a significant problem, but there's, there's two separate issues here. Number one is what you said about, you know, why does it matter if we don't build the F-35? It matters for all the reasons I just said, because we would then not be able to have fighter attack aircraft that could compete in a competitive environment. Um, and you know, and if we want to say, look, we're stepping back and we're not going to deter China and we're not going to deter North Korea and we're not going to deter Russia and we're not going to deter Iran, that's somebody else's job. I mean, that, that's a policy discussion that we can have, but if you don't have a fifth generation fighter, your ability to deter all of those adversaries goes down significantly. So that's, that's number one. Now, so if we were to scrap the whole program, that's where we'd be. Um, we would not be able to deter those adversaries in, in the air, um, to be sure. Second question is, you know, legitimate frustration about how we acquire and procure programs and the mistakes that are made in them. And on this, you know, the current DOD and a lot of others are being very aggressive about changing that. The number of mistakes that were made in the, at the turn of the 21st century in, in, the pro, in the programs that we were making is large. But I will also tell you, this is a lot more complicated than it looks um, in terms of how you're going to make a piece of, like an aircraft carrier or a jet fighter or an amphibious assault vehicle. Um, you know, you're, you're trying to survive in, in a hostile environment. Um, and, you know, technology is important to this. And it's not easy to do. Now, I think the other question that we have to ask, and this is why I think we could get to the point where we don't need to build as many F-35s and where I'm in agreement with you, and this gets to the question of, well, how many of them do we need to deter what we're talking about deterring? And, and if I may just jump in, that is a larger question that I would love to get your, your stand on, and, and that is to say, it, it, as I mentioned in the outset of this discussion, we spend more on our defense than the next 10 countries combined. Is that level of spending necessary? And, and if so, A, could we do with less? And B, at the levels that we are spending, what do you believe that gets us as a country? Yeah, the primary thing that has gotten us, and, and we, we are uniquely positioned in, in the post-World War II world, um, 
we came out of the post-World War II world, and one of the central policies, and there were many, was that we were going to be the guarantor for security on a global scale, okay? Unique to any other country in the world. Now, we also, you know, formed a lot of partnerships. We formed NATO, Organization of American States, CETA, a whole bunch of things. We, we looked at ways to build alliances. We built things like, you know, the World Bank, um, the IMF, you know, all UN. I mean, we, it wasn't just us and our military might. We built institutions and alliances that were also supposed, supposed to do that. But laid over the top of it was that the U.S. was going to be the guarantor of global security. Okay, you know, Japan was not allowed to have a military, um, having grown concerned about what they might do with it. Um, Europe was dust, so they were just trying to get back up off the ground. The Soviet Union was looming. Um, so that's what we did, and we built that. And, and what do we get out of that? We get the most prosperous country in the history of the world. Okay, um, no other, you know, well, go back through the history and pick the countries that were, you know, superpowers of one kind or another, every single ever one of them always wound up in some sort of global conflict, all right, dead on war. Um, we didn't. Um, you know, we had a lot of small conflicts, some of which were more poorly thought out than others. Um, but we did not have, you know, another war in Europe. We did not have another war in Asia. What we got out of it was a 75 to 100 year run of unprecedented prosperity. Much of that prosperity we screwed up and concentrated in the hands of far too few people, but certainly not all of it. Um, you know, we, we grew and we prospered as a nation on an unprecedented level um, because we weren't going off to war um, for the most part, um, and the whole world wasn't getting blown straight to hell so that we had to start over again. That's what we got out of it. Now, the better question at this point is, what are we getting out of it now? Um, and, you know, is it necessary? I do not think that that level of spending is, is necessary to achieve that same level of global stability and deterrence. And one of the best examples of that is nuclear weapons. Um, it is crucially important that we have a nuclear deterrent. I don't want Kim Jong-un or Putin or anyone to go thinking, you know what, let's just nuke the bastards and then they'll be gone and it works. We need to have an adequate deterrent. We do not need 5,000 weapons. And I've seen the scenarios, well, if they do this and we do that and they do that, then we'll get the one. No, what we need is we need what China has. Last I checked, they have about 190 nuclear weapons, which is enough to say, don't screw with us because um, we can inflict a maximum amount of pain on you. Similarly, yes, we need the F-35 for all the reasons that I stated. Do we need that many of them? What are we trying to deter exactly? Um, we're trying to deter, and, and we're trying to deter all the things I just described. I think we can do it in a more cost-effective manner, with, with, without question. But that fundamentally shifts the, 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 the global picture that has existed for the last 75 years. I think it is time to shift that. I think it is time to you know, work with other partners and figure out how we can achieve global stability short of us doing it because we've got the might to try to cow people into it. Um, but that's the answer. So you are saying that at some point it is possible to scale back our militarization and our military spending. Am I, am I getting that correct? Yeah, I, I'd say now. I, I would say not, not at some point. I would say now as, as you look at the world and you look at the threats that we're trying to deter, I think we could do it in a more thoughtful way. And I would say that the, the, in a less expensive way, 
And one of the central flaws in that, well, the biggest flaw in it is what I said at the outset, the whole notion that, well, fear, we sell fear, okay? Um, and, oh my gosh, they could get the upper hand. We have to have more. We have to have more. We all have to buy guns to protect ourselves and, you know, escalate to de-escalate. Yeah. All escalation does is it escalates. Um, so, you know, that's one, one of the biggest drivers. Um, but... You know, we the second biggest driver is the idea that unless we can play out a scenario where we, I mean, for a good chunk of this, our defense strategy was premised on being able to win two major regional contingencies. I love the way the military talks about things. Basically, what they meant was two wars, but that's what they called them, two major regional contingencies. Like, oh, shit, I forgot the milk. I got to go to the store. Um, you know, no, win two wars. And we've never really been able to do that. Um, you know, and it's not necessary. We do not have to build enough weapons. So if tomorrow we went to war with China, we could guarantee the W. A, basically, you need surge capacity. I mean, if you had asked in 1939 if we could have beaten, you know, Germany and Japan with what we had then, the answer would have been a resounding no. Um, that doesn't, I think, mean that we should have built it. Um, I think it means that the surge capacity that we had was necessary. What you need is you don't need the forces to, to win a war. You need the forces to help you deter that war from happening in the first place. And that is a much smaller number. But when you get into a discussion of how many F-35s, how many nuclear submarines we have to have, how many aircraft carriers, that's all based on the premise that this is what we need to win the war tomorrow. And that is the fundamentally flawed premise in our defense budget, in my view. I do want to ask you about a couple of line items, other line items in the sure. NDAA, if you have time. Sure. Uh, one is about artificial intelligence. So the NDAA, the House version, and I believe the Senate version, uh, includes uh, a bill that would create a national cloud infrastructure for artificial intelligence research, uh, which is good on the surface. Uh, but I want to ask specifically about its use in facial recognition technology. So the technology is notoriously biased against BIPOC faces. Um, it is so flawed, in fact, that Google, IBM, and Microsoft have stopped selling it for use in police departments. How do we make sure that as part of our defense budget, we are not funding something that is used to surveil a civilian population and, and particularly populations of color? A couple pieces of that. I mean, first of all, it's not the technology that's biased. It's the people using it that, 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 that's biased in, in my view. Um, what, what the technology does is it simply enables biased approaches to policing to get even worse. So it is I, my understanding, and, and uh, I just jump yeah. in. It's my understanding that the technology itself will say, for example, take a face of a black person and read it as angrier than the face of a white person. So the technology itself is my understanding. There is fundamental flaws. With, with yeah. That. Well, then, 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 then who's who's programming it that way? Um, you know, I mean, who, who developed the thing? I mean, it's possible the technology itself. Well, I'm not disagreeing with your point. I, I, I'm saying that. We need to do more than just block this technology to get at, you know, systemic racism and law enforcement. Um, but as to your point, I completely agree that we should not be spreading this technology out there to be implemented in that way. And that is not that I, I'd have to go back and look, but I'm pretty sure we don't have anything in the bill that specifically promotes that. 
the the approach on a artificial intelligence is it's going to impact so it's going to everything we do in terms of being able to use the technology better. Um, so you know, it, for instance, I mean, it's better to fund that than fund aircraft carriers and F thirty fives because this this is you know cyber warfare. You know, making sure the systems you have actually work, and also being able to process information. Just to give you one example, if we're trying to find terrorists out there in the world, we've got. Um, all kinds of ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance flowing around. We're generating a ton of information, um, you know, and, but how do you process it? You know, how, how do you go through it and tell, well, that's what AI can do. Now, if AI does it in a stupid way that, you know, makes you biased to, to, to basically lock in existing irrational biases, then that's a huge problem that we'll get in the way of. But it would it would harm our defense far more to not invest in new technologies like like AI than to stop making F thirty fives. In my view, I mean the technology is what's going to be really necessary to deter adversaries going forward, and we got to do it in a smart way. Um, and I I applaud what Google and others have done to sort of pull back on that so that those biases don't get put in place. And I think we should do the same thing in terms of how we deploy the technology anyway. DOD, Homeland, whoever's deploying it, we need to get out get out these biases, and those biases, then that technology should not be deployed um, if it is biased in that way. I have many, many questions for you that were submitted about foreign policy. I know we're sure. right up against the clock. I can go over if you can. I, I certainly can. Well, we, we welcome that. Um, so there are a number of issues around the world that are going to need repair post-Trump. Um, Trump Trumpism, if you like, has just done incalculable damage to our standing and, and our perception on the world stage. And I would love to get your thoughts on how we would begin to repair that damage. And you mentioned authoritarianism as, as being uh, one of our fundamental threats. We know that Trump has embraced authoritarians all over the world. And, and I, I believe in so doing has empowered authoritarianism how do you think we push back on these authoritarians in a way that will turn the tide against authoritarianism in the world and especially here in the West? Yeah, let me just be very honest up front. I do not have the answer to that question. <laughs> I have some ideas about what, what we should do. But if I, if I you know, start talking in a way that gives you the impression that I've come up with a three-point plan to stop this, then, then that is a misimpression. I'm interested simply in yeah. your opinions. Yeah. 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 Um, to, to begin with, I mean, you know, the president's attacks on the media, the president's attacks on democratic institutions. You see people like Erdogan and Duterte and others mimicking those and saying, you know, well, I mean, we're, we're all over Hong, you know, China and Hong Kong for suppressing democracy. And our own president talks about delaying the election. OK, um, so number one is start to lead by example. OK, I embrace media, embrace democracy, you know, embrace the idea that this is not a cult of personality. We are not a nation of individuals. We are a nation of laws um, and a nation of norms. And to, to begin to actually advocate for that um, now, and I think that's crucial. And the other thing that's really important is to, is to shore up alliances. Trump has spent four years now, you know, denigrating, you know, I mentioned the thing in Germany. That's why he's doing what he's doing in Germany, Un undermining democratic countries, undermining democratic institutions while singing the praises of, gosh, Kim Jong-un for that matter. Uh, but certainly Putin at different times, 
um, President Xi. I mean, the Republicans have now decided that if they successfully demonize China, they might be able to survive the election. Um, so they've changed their tune on that. But he was every little bit as, you know, I mean, when she made himself president for life, Trump, I forget what he said exactly, but it was like, God, I wish I could do that. Right. Fundamentally what he said. So change all of that. Um, but it's, it is going to be difficult. And I think that the real foreign policy challenge, you know, and I, when President Obama was in charge during the Arab Spring, you know, I think that's a really good illustration of how difficult it is to go beyond what I just said to really forcefully, you know, supporting democratic regimes and opposing authoritarian ones. Um, you know, should we have come in in Syria and, and tried to do something to protect, you know, blah. well, we did it. We, we went in in Libya. That didn't work out so well. Um, so the idea that we can do it at the barrel of a gun, I think, needs to be extinguished. Um, we can't. Um, we'd be helpful where we can and not hold out this idea that somehow the U.S. is only ever going to support perfect democratic nations. Um, we got into trouble in Egypt in this regard. You know, do, we supported Mubarak for a long time. Then we abandoned him. Then, you know, the um, there was a constitutionally elected government that was uh, an extremist government that wanted, you know, as, as Thomas Friedman always used to say, one person, one vote, one time, um, that wanted to flush the Constitution. So then what do you do? It was a democratically elected government that wants to end democracy. Yeah. So I think one of the big things that we could do is be honest about it. You know, I think typically the United States, our rhetoric has far outstripped our reality. And I think that undermines our credibility. We're always running around the world saying that we're for peace, freedom, you know, the American way. And then people, well, what about this? Okay, you're backing that guy. I think having a more realistic approach to how we can slowly advance the idea. But to begin with, if we would simply stop attacking democracies and praising authoritarianism, that would help. <laughs> um, and, and I do think that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the right people for that job. And we need to be supportive of that. But I, and I think this has to be our number one mission. And again, it, well, not again, but let me just say, I don't want the U.S. to have the approach that we must dominate the world. The neoconservative approach was a real problem in that regard. Um, uh, this whole problem with American first, you know, American first implies that we don't give, give a damn about anybody else. I want to work cooperatively with the rest of the world towards that more peaceful, prosperous um, world that I described. And I think we need to start sending those signals that we're going to work with people to make things better. I think that is music to the ears of a lot of people listening right now. Uh, I, I will ask you because you, you've you brought up, you know, the denigration of our relationship with our allies, uh, most recently with Trump pulling 12,000 troops out of Germany. When Trump is defeated and eventually he'll be gone, do you feel that our allies will see Trump as an aberration or, or do you get the sense that the damage runs deeper right now? The damage runs deeper right now. Um, well, I, I'd put it this way. I would say 75% of it, I think they, they see it as Trump. 25%, they worry about our reliability going forward. It's funny. I was talking with Brad Smith about the whole TikTok thing the other day. Um, and we were talking a lot about, you know, promoting democracy, you know, across the globe. Um, you know, and the idea that, you know, and look, Russia and China are aggressively promoting the idea that authoritarian authoritarian kleptocracies are the right way to run things. Um, that basically, you know, you can't trust the rabble to govern themselves. 
Um, we need a strong man, and it always has to be a man in their vision, um, to enforce order for the good of everyone. Um, you know, and we're, we're promoting democracy, but we elected Trump. <laughs> okay. Here's what democracy got us. All right. So, you know, I mean, that kind of is a little bit of a gut punch to the overall argument, not to say that I don't still support democracy. And, and let's also point out that our peculiar electoral college, you know, we, we didn't actually elect Trump. Um, you know, the oddities of how our system works put him in office. But I think we got work to do. We got work to do. Well, there was always a line that people used before the Iraq war. Um, you know, going into that, okay, we got to get rid of Saddam Hussein. And the question was, is Saddam Hussein, is Iraq the way it is because of Saddam Hussein? Or is Saddam Hussein the way he is because of Iraq? And I think some portions of the rest of the world right now are asking that question about us. Um, you know, was Trump an aberration that we will fix? So we, we, we got, you know, some relationship building to do to show them that, that it was an aberration. This is not how we feel about the rest of the world. You have mentioned China and, and Russia um, repeatedly. So I will just ask you to be specific on your thoughts here. We know that Trump has been wildly inconsistent with China. In fact, many analysts believe that this has empowered China. And you mentioned Hong Kong as a, as a perfect example. In your mind, what does an effective China foreign policy look like post-Trump? Yeah, um, it's very difficult. There, there's no simple solution here. I think, you know, back in the 90s and into the 2000s, the notion was that we would bring China into the global system and then they would become a better actor in the world. Now, that was naive on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, I think people dismissed that and said we never should have done that. But what, what was the alternative? You know, we were going to try to keep them down um, and say what you want about China. They've brought somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 500 million people out of poverty in the course of the last 30 years. That's not a bad thing. All right. There's been a cost, to... but yes. Oh yeah. No. Well, look, I, I'm not. A, I'm not. You know, denigrating the cost, but I'm saying we, we we can't ignore that. That's what China was dealing with. So the question is, how do we get China to be a more cooperative player on the global stage? To me, that that's the issue. Um, you know, they are. You know, what they're doing with Hong Kong, what they're doing with what they want to do with Taiwan, the islands that they're you know, contesting with about a half dozen countries throughout the region, how do we get them to buy into a rules-based system? And I would say, and I know that a lot of people are going to consider this to be naive, we have to engage with them. Um, I really think we do. And, and the other thing that we need to do is to build partnerships in Asia. And, and throughout, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, it's actually going better than it might seem, okay? Um, because fortunately, Trump is a narcissist, but he's also a fool. So he doesn't have like a grand strategy here. And while he's not paying attention, we are building relationships with India and um, Thailand and Vietnam and South Korea. There's problems there. But there's a growing understanding in that part of the world that China is potentially a problematic bully and they need to band together to be in the best position to counter that bully. And I think we need to build on that. Well, and then but if I may just jump in, doesn't the yeah. Pacific Deterrence Initiative maybe run a little counter to the point that you just made about China, about building relationships? Um, I'm sorry, you're talking uh, the Indo-Pacific? No, I don't believe it does. I think it, it sort of, it, it builds on that alliance point. 
Because the point, just like the European Defense Initiative, the European Defense Initiative and the Indo-Pacific Defense Initiative, the idea is to build partner capacity and partner relationships. The idea is to make sure that there's enough of a defense cooperation throughout the other countries around there, because that was what I was just getting to. Part of this also has to be deterrence. I mean, I, we have to, those countries have to be strong enough so that China doesn't think they can just roll over them. Does that look um, like a Cold War scenario to you? I mean, it potentially could drift into that. It becomes an arms race Cold War scenario if it becomes we have to beat them in a war. If it, if it is simple common sense, making sure that you have enough defense so that China thinks that the cost of going into Taiwan, the cost of doing land grabs throughout the area is too high, then that's just smart. But that's the key point and why this is why, why I have hope in this region. The reason that I don't think that we have to build up a military so that we can defeat China in a war is because China is invested in global security. They are. They need to keep feeding those you know, 1.4 billion people. They want to expand economically. They, they're not, and this is why I always say that I, I consider ISIS and Al-Qaeda the greatest threat. They don't care. They want to blow the whole thing up. They're not, invested in, they're not invested in anything. The more chaos, the better from their perspective. That's really dangerous. China doesn't want to do that. And neither does Russia, by the way. So what you have to do is you have to create a scenario, not where you can beat them in a war, but where the cost of them doing something outside of the norms is higher than they want to pay. And, and, and to think that you know we can do that without some kind of military deterrent, I, I think is wrong. And I would rather that deterrent be a partnership amongst all of the Asian countries in the region than it would be the US having to spend 10 times as much money on the budget so we can go over to, to Asia and do it on our own. Um, you have to have a deterrent. Would you rather have the deterrent be them or would you rather have it be us? I also want to ask you about our nuclear program. In terms of our defense picture, where does our nuclear arsenal fit in in your mind in terms of either proliferating or, or decreasing it or maintaining it? A couple of things. We, we, we need to decrease it, in my view. I think we can maintain the deterrence. Now, you know, I'm not Pollyannish about it that somehow if we you know decrease our um, nuclear weapons somehow automatically Russia will or whatever I don't, look all I know is that we don't need to spend the amount of money we're spending on nuclear weapons in order to adequately deter our adversaries there's also the argument that the more nuclear weapons have the more we ramp up you know it, what's the risk okay you know is, is there is, does that create a greater risk of an accidental nuclear war or a miscalculation somewhere along the lines? You can argue both sides of that because what the Republicans will argue is, well, if we have fewer weapons, then the other side will think they can win. And then we'll, you know, I don't agree with that. Um, I think we can survive on a lot fewer weapons. And I think economically that makes sense. I do think that it, it helps send the, right, send the right message to the world about where nuclear weapons should go. But equally important to that, we need to get back into arms control negotiations and nonproliferation. That's fallen apart in the last decade. Um, you know, we've pulled out of every treaty. You've got Russia, you know, building all manner of different different weapons. You know, China's not even part of any of these discussions. Um, the major nuclear powers of the world need to get back into a negotiation about 
So there's clarity on all of this. The, the miscalculation happens when people, you know, I go into these briefings all the time. Oh my God, you know, I can't tell you, but you know, Russia's got some scary freaking weapons. Um, and I'm like, okay, but how is that any scarier than what they had in the first place? Well, you know, it's, a, it's not. Okay, so we don't need to freak out. Okay, it's a different way of killing all of us, but they already got about 10 different ways. So let's just chill for the moment and, and focus on what it happened. But if you don't know, okay, if you don't have an ongoing dialogue, I mean, Russia, this is why they were concerned about the strategic defense initiative, Star Wars. Well, if you get to the point where you can have you know, ballistic missile defense and you can knock out all of our missiles, then you'll think you can win nuclear war. Well, we're not at that point. We're not even close to that point. But how do they know that unless we have an open dialogue? This is why things like the Open Skies Treaty and START are so important. Um, and all the Republicans will say was, gosh, the Russians aren't adhering to these treaties, so we, there's no point in even talking about them. I don't disagree that Russia's cheating, but that doesn't lead to the second conclusion. Um, we need to talk about this, and, and we're not. Um, that's as crucial to stopping nuclear war as it is that we reduce our arsenal. We will close on just a couple of audience questions that have come through here. Uh, Donna from Indivisible Whidbey asks, can you give us the status of a full Pentagon audit? Why are we funding without it? Um, They are moving forward to audit more of the Pentagon. Um, They haven't gotten to a full audit yet, but they are basically every year now we get, okay, here's the whole picture. And this 30% is full. This is what's lagging here. There is a, a, a focus to get to that, that, that full audit. Now, a couple of reasons why we didn't have a full audit. First of all, any large entity uh, struggles with a, a full and detailed audit. So we shouldn't be you know, Pollyannish about that. However, no large entity struggles more than the Department of Defense. And part of that is because there wasn't accountability for years. And also their IT infrastructure is really not great. I mean, they're using... So, they can't keep track of where they're spending the money, what they're spending it on, how many buildings they own, how many, you know, all that. So we are pushing forward, trying to get to that point. Now, I, I will say this, that just because they don't have an effective audit, to my mind, doesn't mean that we should decide that we're not going to have a Department of Defense. Um, it does kind of perform some important missions that we've talked about today. I do think we need to really aggressively push them to get more effective in their audit because you can hide behind a lot of this stuff, this discussion that we've been having about how much do we really need? Right. Well, if you don't know what you need, then you can come in and say, ah, but wait a second, we got all this stuff over here. In fact, I'll give you an example of this that I am now you know, starting to get ready to go to war on. Back to the nuclear world. There's a thing called the NNSA, which off the top of my head, I don't know what it stands for, but it is the organization that is responsible for our nuclear arsenal. And it is folded into the Department of Energy, actually, and works with the Department of Defense. They have a budget every year of about 19 to $20 billion. At the moment, they have $8 billion in uncosted balances. I love that phrase too, by the way. What that basically means is they got $8 billion hanging around that yeah, they don't really have a specific purpose for right at the moment. It was appropriated for something else. They wound up not spending it. Okay. And then they're asking and they're saying they need more money. Well, what are you planning on doing with the $8 billion? Those are things that we really need to press and go forward on, on what is actually happening. And you alluded to this earlier, but within that audit question, there is also the, the issue of how it impacts our economy. And, and, you know, defense spending, I mean, right now, particularly when you see a down, you know, commercial aviation in the toilet. So you've got a lot of companies that, you know, manufacture these parts 
defensive spending becomes more important for them to keep the jobs. How do we balance that against the idea that, well, we shouldn't be spending weapons just for the sake of, you know, you know, keeping jobs, jeopardizing global security. Um, and audits, understanding where the money is spent, how the money is spent, helps you make better decisions on that. So we are going to be very aggressive. And we have, you know, made progress in the last five or six years, and we need to make a lot more. Colin McLean asks, is there any hope of shutting down our military base in Hinoko, Okinawa to protect the coral? And I would I would actually follow up by uh, kind of tying this into where we began about our priorities and our values. You mentioned that, uh, you know, climate change is it's it's a national uh, security risk. Um, isn't that counter isn't destroying a critical coral reef to build a new base contrary to our commitment to the climate? Yeah, there's several different layers to this. Um, to begin with, we have our presence in Asia, which we've talked a lot about as a deterrence to China, deterrence to North Korea. So, you know, the, the base, the existing base, I think it was at Futema, um, you know, was unsustainable. The people in Okinawa didn't want it there. People in Japan didn't want this. We negotiated forever, forever, forever on where to move them to, and we decided to move them to this place. Um, and this was decided by the Japanese government, and we, we agreed. Um, now there is this environmental issue that's been raised. The Japanese government is adamantly opposed to not going forward with putting the base in this place. They want us out of Fatima. They want us there. The locals in Okinawa, they have an entirely different viewpoint on this. Um, this is funded not by us, but by the Japanese government. Now, I guess we could say we're not going to go there. I was going to say it's our decision to proceed, Correct. Um, well, it is a mutual decision. Um, we're not paying for it. It's actually Japan's decision. Um, they're the ones paying for it. And they're the ones who want us there. We could say no, but if we say no, we're basically in a position, I forget the numbers, I think it's like eight, eight to 10,000 Marines, but fundamentally have no place to be um, in the short term. So what, I, what we need is an alternative. And that is what I have not yet been able to find. We had a provision in our bill to try to go after this, but then the committee, you know, the Japanese, actually the Japanese government reached out directly and, you know, got opposition to the provision that we put in the bill. Um, so we lost that. We're working on it, but it's really complicated because this was the plan that they decided on and there is not a plan B. Um, if in fact we don't build this, then presumably, I guess they have to stay at Futema for an extended period of time, which would also upset a lot of people. So what we really need is, is an alternative as to where to, to in the short term, at least, um, put the 10,000 Marines or what, I think it's 8,000, um, that are there. But yes, no, it is a major problem without question. We will end on this question, and this is from Kat. Um, she wants to know, and this, I think, is in relation to what we were talking about, uh, you know, sort of the the Trump in lame duck period, the sorts of things yeah. that he could do, the danger of that. What are we doing in the NDA to increase transparency and install guardrails against Trump rating budgets? Uh, I believe $70 billion is in the uh, overseas contingency operations. That's a dangerous slush fund that many think that Trump could rate. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, he can't actually. Um, the, the overseas contingency money has been there for a long time, and it's specifically allocated. What Trump has done, and this is what he's tried to do with his most recent executive orders, is he and his very clever lawyers have found various emergency clauses. We, we have legislatively created emergencies 
over the course of a whole long time that basically say, in the case of an emergency, the president can do this. Now, it's, it's prescribed. Um, for instance, when it comes to the money that he's trying to drive out for unemployment, um, it's an emergency, but the money can only be taken out of FEMA. Um, he can't just grab it from wherever he wants it. Similarly, on his border wall, you know, which, by the way, they are busily digging under and, you know, climbing over and cutting through even as we speak. Surprise, surprise. Um, he used an emergency thing that allowed him to grab money from the military construction budget and also from the drug interdiction account. But he could only take it from those specific accounts. So what we've done in this year's bill is we have severely restricted the amount of money that can be take out of, taken out of Milcon for any emergency. Um, because he, gosh, he gra he's grabbed eight billion, I think, at this point. We limit it to a hundred million um, that could be taken out in a year because that money has been taken for legitimate emergencies at different times. Uh, but that's what he does. So, I, and this is something that we're going to need to think about if we get back into power: is to go back and scrub, you know, all of these emergency declarations within the context of what if we get a president who abuses it? And tariffs are another good example. The tariffs that he just levied against Canada. Um, is because of a national security emergency. Okay, now what is the national security emergency that has to do with candy? I honestly don't know, um, but that's a 1962, 61 law. Um, so he just declares an emergency and then, you know, throws terror. We're going to have to revisit those laws. I mean, this this is probably the best place to close here. Uh, power does not relinquish power. You know, the the expansion of the executive, particularly under the Bush, the W. Bush administration, has been so profound. And now we see in the hands of an executive like Trump just how dangerous it can be. I wonder if you can sort of tie in the points that if we have a Democratic trifecta in November, if there is a way potentially, and this obviously is up to the executive branch, to sort of limit some of these executive powers. And then similarly, is there a way in concert to begin to draw back some of our militarization? Do you, do you see either of those two things working in concert at all? Yeah, I mean, I think the militarization is, is driven in large part by the power that the, well, not military, part of the problem is the executive has enormous power. Right. And what uh, I guess I mean to say is if we have a democratic trifecta, that would be the only scenario in which such things could be done. Yes. No, I, I agree. Um, and then we got the whole little filibuster thing that we got to deal with personally. Correct. Filibuster could be trashed and that should be the end of it. It never made any sense to begin with. But um, I'll give you one little flavor for the challenges in that, the Insurrection Act. The Insurrection Act is another thing that, that Trump never actually used it, um, but he threatened to invoke the Insurrection Act to send troops out there. So we we have been looking at ways to better restrict the use of the Insurrection Act. But historically, the Insurrection Act has been it has been used and was most recently used in the early 90s to respond to um, the, the violence in Los Angeles. But it was used in the 50s and 60s to enforce civil rights legislation. Um, it was used in 1957 to integrate the schools in Arkansas. Um, so now we come along and say, well, we're going to limit the executive power. We're going to have to be able to answer those questions. What about times where that executive power may not be, may be necessary? My personal opinion, however you balance out the whole scales, we are way crazy on the side of giving the president more power than he should have right now. This feeds into the 2001 AUMF, 2002 right. AUMF, which then you know, has given this broad authority to the president 
to do whatever he wants to do outside of the normal system of checks and balances. For people who may not know, the AUMF was the authorization that Congress gave to President Bush in 2001 for terrorism, I believe, and in 2002 for action in Iraq, and it is yet to be repealed. So please continue. Yeah, no, that's that's basically it. I mean, I mean, and this is is going to be a balance to be struck, but I would stand firmly in the idea that right now the balance has shifted way too far towards executive power and away from the checks and balances that the legislative branch. And then we got the whole judiciary, um, you know, which has become, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Radicalized. Um, you know, ideology. Now, there have been tiny little signs that maybe Roberts doesn't want to go down in history as the guy who destroyed the judiciary, but those signs are small. Um, and I worry greatly that our judiciary has now become simply a rubber stamp for whatever executive it is that they agree with. Versus, you know, so yeah, we need to to more we need to shore up the strength of our checks and balances system so that executive power is not so easily abused. There is so much that we could talk about, particularly in terms of what could be accomplished with a democratic trifecta. We are simply out of time. We've we've taken so much of your morning. Will you come back and join us again? Anytime. Because let me tell you something. There's a whole lot of issues going on. The, the thing that I actually I think about quite a lot when I'm walking in the morning, but one of the biggest things, my biggest focus is can we achieve a governing democratic progressive majority? Um, you know, if I'm laying a hundred dollars down at the moment, I'm still betting against that. Um, that if we got if we get into government, um, are we going to be able to do it effectively enough that we're not tossed out of power in two years? Um, I'm skeptical. And we have a lot of different points within that. You, you take the universe of people who want Donald Trump out as president, and then you say, okay, what camps do they fall in? Okay, it is an incredibly diverse coalition by every definition of the word diversity that you can imagine. Well, you've got everybody from Bernie Sanders to the Lincoln Project. Exactly. Yeah. How, do we, how do we get that group to agree enough that, that we can govern effectively and not fall apart. It, it, it is an incredibly important project to work on. Um, and you represent a, you know, a large part of that. Um, so, yeah, I want to find out how we can work together, um, obviously, to defeat Trump, but then to govern effectively and move the country forward. Because we've we got a lot of problems right now, as I'm sure you're aware. That is the $64,000 question, and we would be uh, honored if you would come back and have a fulsome discussion about that. Congressman Adam Smith, uh, we, we can't thank you enough for your time, sir. Oh, thank you. Now, I appreciate all your work and look forward to continuing to work with you. And that is it for today. Thank you again to Congressman Adam Smith. Thanks also to Glenn Carpenter and Connor Stubbs. Huge thanks to Kat Pipkin, Jennifer Ho, Louise Bate, Larry Berendt, Chris Franco, Elizabeth Beavers, and Mary Small. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.